First Peter 2, 1-12 So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God. We've been talking about spiritual vitality since September, looking at 1 Peter, a New Testament letter. It's always something worth revisiting and talking about, but it seemed a particularly important time because so many people feel like they're drying up. Uh, The effects that uh, how our society has had to respond to COVID has left us separated, has left us anxious, has left us where the normal things we do that feel life-giving haven't been there. And in some cases, it translated into a deeper spirituality. But for some, it was destabilizing, discouraging. And uh, there was a sense in which we weren't coming out of it feeling spiritually alive. And so we're talking about this spiritual reality that God works within us and matures us and grows us. Um, We are going to take a pause in the First Peter series after today and pick it back up in January. So in the month of December, we're going to be looking at some select passages from Isaiah as we near Christmas. But we will pick up in 1 Peter in January and finish the next section of the book where it it, uh, focuses a little bit more about as individuals, how do we relate to society? But what we've been looking for uh, in, in the last couple of months is how God comes and works in the lives of individuals, Uh, bringing us together, but also growing and maturing us. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk about three realities that are part of that spiritual life. If God has worked within you, if God is opening your eyes, if God is calling you to himself, there are three realities that we can expect. The first is that there is a war against your soul. So this is verse 11. 
you can expect that there will be a war against your soul. There's a number of um, metaphors or models or uh, different kinds of imagery in the New Testament. There's athletic imagery, compete to win the prize, that sort of thing. There's motherly nurturing imagery of Jesus saying, I desire to gather you under my wing. There's agricultural imagery, the kingdom is like a seed planted. There's all sorts of images from our world to help us to understand things. And unfortunately, in every place and in every time, the imagery of war is always going to speak to people. And of all the various images, this is not one that excites me. Some people really get inspired by the, the call to rise up and to be courageous and to fight. Some people really uh, maybe find that kind of imagery about the armor of God capturing your heart. And that's good. These images are meant to inspire you. I'm the kind of person that I wish that... I, I, I'm, I'm longing for the days of Isaiah when the, uh, the swords will be beaten into plowshares. And so I don't get excited by this imagery. But I have to acknowledge that it's there. It, it says, well, whether or not this is a helpful metaphor for you, you are going to experience spiritual life and growth in this world as though you are being attacked, pushed back. It's not going to be easy. Uh, your desire to grow is a good desire, and yet there will be forces at work, and they're on the outside. So First Peter uh, in 2, we, we have reference to people who speak of your good deeds as though they're evil. But what I'm highlighting here is they're within us too. There's something about our corrupt human natures that even when we desire to improve and to grow and do, do good, it can feel like we're being dragged down. And so in verse 11, and our focus today is mostly verses 11 and 12, though we are dipping back into the passage that was, we looked at a bit more last week. Verse 11, he says, I urge you. So this is quite important to Peter when he's dealing with our conduct, when he's dealing with the outworkings of what God is doing within us, this is really important. There's an urging. And his urging is, in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, uh, the the Bible is not against being passionate or against being enthusiastic, but the the qualifying thing here is of the flesh. The, The idea of in our fallen humanity, There's these corrupt desires that rule over us. And uh, what are they? Well, they could be things that we would think of, uh, maybe that's spoken a bit more uh, common in modern circles, things like greed or lust or things like that that would qualify as these desires that that we're constantly battling against. If if we have certain goals and aspirations, they're just going to try to pull us away. But for the sake of staying within this context, I'll just revisit the things that are named in verse 1 the kinds of things that we're to put away, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. It's not a comprehensive list, but it is a picture of the kinds of things that are at work in all of us to some degree. And some of us have more uh, or have have particular difficulties or struggles or desires that we really uh, have to fight against in a particular way, but all of us are prone to all of these things. And so let me just pull out a couple of them just as a reminder of why this is important, why Peter's urging us not to be overtaken by these things. I'll take envy, just because envy is so basic. Um, All of us will be tempted by it, and even the more in a place like New York, or a top university like Columbia, you come to a place where there's greatness and there's competitiveness, and that could inspire greatness, but it could also destroy us. What's the problem with envy? I'll highlight two things. One, 
is it's going to ruin you and your experience of the world. Shouldn't we want things that are good? Shouldn't we love excellence? Shouldn't we desire progress? Shouldn't we rejoice when people are gifted and when, when things are going well and things are going right? And we mostly do if we're either removed from them or if we're participating directly in them. But there's something about most of us that, that if it's not something that we have a clear participation in, then greatness, <laughs> excellency, it discourages us. It strikes at that egocentric desire that I like greatness if it's bringing a, a reward for me of the admiration and the success. Um, but it, it keeps us from enjoying anything that is good. And so simply by our own experience, being envious means the things that are good in the world that can inspire you and cause delight, there's something about us that instead of enjoying them makes us resent it. There's something about things that are good that make us feel worse about ourselves. Rather than being drawn into the goodness, we distance ourselves from it and we want to drag them back. So the second thing about envy is it's relationally disastrous. It doesn't simply happen uh, across distant lines, but it happens in the closest circle, siblings. You know, why is it that my parents seem to prefer and be kinder and show favoritism to my sibling? It happens within marriages. Shouldn't you be happy if you're married for your spouse's career success? You should be. You're united and one. You love that person. And sometimes when one is being successful, there's uh, an envy that says, boy, I, I know I should be rejoicing, but I only feel the more miserable and incompetent because of sharing life with somebody who's thriving when I feel like I'm not. Uh, it happens in every community. It destroys human relationships. It, it keeps us from being able to excel and to do good things because um, we're too fragile. And so envy is something that should not rule our hearts. It shouldn't Take us over. It's something that we are urged to put it away. Don't let it influence you. Don't let that shape your character. And then another one, I'll just give a, a brief example of hypocrisy. Uh, what's wrong with hypocrisy? It also will keep you from having deep relationships because we are sufficiently in tune with our own flaws and, and we may perceive them differently. Maybe we just think we need to grow given enough time and we just don't want people to see it now or maybe we, we feel so tired of trying to deal with our problems that we just want to cover them up where we or nobody can see them or have access to them. That's understandable. But what it means is if shame is helping us to guard a place that we want no one to have access to, we don't want to see it and deal with it, we don't want others to see it and deal with it because we fear the consequences and the difficulties, then what that means is in the deepest recesses of who you are, you're not letting people in and there's always a superficiality to our relationships. And so your deepest needs, are people praying for them or are we just hoping they'll go away if we ignore them? And so in church communities, we pray for things that are important and maybe hint at some deeper things. Uh, but most of us don't lay ourselves bare um, sometimes even alone before God, there's things that we don't want to deal with. But certainly where we feel weak ourselves, isn't that what community is for? Somebody else who will pray on your behalf. And yet, and yet we don't have that depth, that intimacy. So our friendships, um, even more committed relationships, like within families, we don't have that depth because of the, the temptation all of us face to hypocrisy, to put on uh, the best exterior we can because we see the limits of how we can deal with our interior. And so these are the kinds of forces that are working against us. Do you want to be good? Every person 
should say yes to that. Because goodness has its own reward, however we define what's good. And yet, anyone who really tries to be good, not just to be a nicer person, not just to do a few good deeds, but, but where there's a thoroughness and integrity where you say, who I am, I want to be good, I want to act good, so that you can have your conscience rest at night. We long for that, but all of us are dealing with the reality that within us there are these corruptions, there are these things that we don't like what we see. None of us are ever truly good enough. And so uh, there's a constant feeling like there's a war. Just when I feel like I'm, I'm getting better, I feel like I'm being dragged back down. Now, a few weeks ago, I gave uh, an example that involved both biking and physics. This involved wind. I'm realizing I'm not very original, so here's another biking and physics uh, illustration, but it involves gravity instead of wind. So there's your originality. I'm bringing something new to you. Uh, so I spend a lot of time on the bike, and yes, it is getting windier, and I don't love that. But in another challenge of biking, you know, these days it's so great. Google Maps, you just put in where you want to go, and they give you bike routes, and sometimes it doesn't make sense because they, you know, in Manhattan they map you where there's official routes, and there are certainly streets that you can go on that, are, that don't necessarily have a bike lane, but you'd be perfectly fine. Uh, but eventually you figure that out. The, the real problem, I think, is that there's insufficient topography as a feature on Google Maps, which is biking is wonderful, except you start to realize, you know, Morningside Heights, any neighborhood with the name Heights in it, as a cyclist, don't want to go there. Where you want to be, Murray Hill? No thanks. Don't want to go anywhere that there's a hill. Where do these neighborhood names come from? Then you start saying, why do they call it Hell's Kitchen? Well, from a cyclist, there's no, there's no uh, hill there. And then you try to bike down Ninth Avenue with those um, potholes, and you realize, yeah, even there, maybe there's an appropriateness to the name. So uh, I don't know with each neighborhood when you figure it out, but certainly anything that implies that there's a hill or elevation as a cyclist you want a mapping program that can sort of bring you around it if possible. Why? Because of gravity. Now, the interesting thing about a bike is a bike is a highly efficient machine that you really don't feel the effects of gravity when you're biking just because of the, the mechanisms that are pretty efficient. It's when you're on a hill. That's when you feel that force, that whether your experience is it being pushed back or just, you know, biologically being out of wind. And frankly, when I say, I realize some of you come from you know, mountainous places like Colorado and Washington, and here I am talking about the, the hill of Morningside Heights being hard to bike, and maybe there's not a lot of sympathy for those of you who uh, have done the Tour de France. Uh, but, but for me, um, just wanting a relatively easy commute, uh, the hills are a struggle because of that force. But, and, you know, the Manhattan Hills aren't that hard, but I remember going to Uptown Community Church in Washington Heights. It's a lot easier to go gradually up St. Nicholas than to go down for that beautiful water ride and then under the George Washington Bridge to get up to the heights. You know, I see a lot of people um, walking their bikes up. <laughs> they just, they couldn't do it. They ran out of the energy. They, it was just too steep, too hard. Um, this war within our souls, there are these forces at work that um, often you don't feel. And if you're trying to be good, maybe, maybe there are the energizing forces that would help propel you forward. But if you really want to be thoroughly good, if you really want to live a transformed life, and especially if good is being defined by God, you want to be more like Jesus, then you're going to find that the, the higher you try to, to grow in your experience, the more exhausting it can get. The more you're going to feel you're being pulled down. The more you're going to feel uh, fear, you're going to fail. Which is why one of the things that, that Jesus warns against is the kinds of 
what we might think of noble um, human instinct to moralism or to religion. To say, you know what, if you just get it together, if you just learn the rules, if you just fight harder, eventually you'll get there. And Jesus is saying, yeah, the climb, the ascendancy to the place where God is, um, that's, not a, that's not a hill. That's something that you will never make your way up. You don't have the strength, you don't have the energy. And so yes, you wanna be a good person, but it's always gonna feel impossible and exhausting. And so we need to be aware that there is um, a war. And so, so what do we do about it? So here's a second reality. The, the first reality there is just that uh, in your spiritual growth, you will experience resistance, discouragement, difficulty, failure. But here's a second reality. <clears throat> You have received mercy. You have received mercy. This is important for a person who has made the commitment to following Jesus. Um, Jesus is clear up front that it won't be easy. He says, count the cost. Like anybody would reasonable would do. A building person would count the cost before they build. So before you follow me, be aware that following me will bring great blessing and a great future, but it will also have challenges. And so Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And that imagery, that language, reminds us of the difference of Jesus, who's not a hypocrite. He doesn't come as a salesman or some, some leader trying to recruit us to his cause, but he, he alludes to a cross that he himself will face, great suffering, great evil, great forces against him. And he says that following me will involve taking up your own cross in a sense, that you will find that following me, though it is worthwhile, will involve um, experiencing some of what I've experienced. If I was opposed and you are following me, you will be opposed. And so verse four, uh, as we go back, speaking of Jesus, it says, as you come to him, a living stone. So here's this imagery of a living stone at this temple that's being built. But, but Jesus has spoken of as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And, and here's the thing about how human beings see because we are gripped by envy, because we have malice, because we are the kinds of people who see in such a way that we desire to slander uh, these kinds of traits, the, the very things that we're urged to put away, those affect how we interpret, how we live and we experience. If you're envious, you will find excuses to hate the person you're envious of, even if the reality is simply that they're more successful of you. It changes the way you shape and see things. And so what happens when somebody who is truly good comes Jesus sent into the world, and yes, there was rejoicing at the signs of his healing and people marveling at his wisdom, and there was no denying the profound goodness in him. But what is it about people that, that we can't be in the presence of such thorough goodness without our shame making us want to fall away or making us want to resist. And so we find in the whole of Jesus' ministry, he's resisted, he's challenged. And so in verse eight, He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so there's a sense in which Jesus, is, there's something defining about a confrontation with Jesus. You know, God and his goodness comes in the face of Jesus Christ and it elicits a response from us. And one response is uh, to expose all of the, the things in us that are unlike him and then we go back to those old responses. Our defense mechanisms are withdrawing, are responding uh, with fight or flight, or whatever it is that we do, that, that there's something about Jesus the rock that makes some of us stumble. We trip over it. His goodness doesn't enable us to step up and go higher, but 
We fall down. We're crushed by the weight of it. But there's a spiritual working, um, a transformation, because when you come to him, this living stone, he's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. And that's what we're depending on, revelation. God to use his spirit to open our eyes so we would see differently. So we would see the kind of goodness that doesn't cause us to be ashamed, but the kind of goodness that draws us closer. And so when God does that work, we don't stumble on the rock, but we are built onto it. That's the vision. Verse 3, have you tasted that the Lord is good? If you have tasted that the Lord is good, then his story becomes your story. If he was rejected by people, uh, you can expect that that will happen. But if he is chosen and precious in the sight of God, well, that changes who you are. That changes how you understand your identity and what's happening that you realize, I'm not going to live for my own sight and, or the opinions of others, but it's what God, who is good, it's what he sees that matters. When he looks on Jesus, the son, he sees somebody beloved. When we look at Jesus, we see somebody who's maybe so good that it drives us crazy. And we're told that God will open our eyes to see that his goodness is a different kind of goodness. It's not like the pride of human excellence. Because yes, there's corruption in our hearts, but there's corruption everywhere. And so any time in any competitive environment or whatever it is, when there's greatness, there's something about the way people carry their greatness that also provokes. There's something about Jesus that doesn't do that, that the weak and the marginalized wind up being drawn to him. It's a more thorough, it's a real goodness. And so we are told not to stumble and fall, but when we see him to be built up, to join with him, to taste that the Lord is good, and to have that thirst, create an appetite for that spiritual milk that's described, that you want to feed, you want to grow more of it. You've tasted that goodness and you realize, I want to put away my envy. That's how I've lived and that's how I've, I've, I've maybe learned to manage um, my life and my experience, but it comes out of my shame and, and I don't want that to be me anymore. I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I've tasted that the Lord is good and I want to move forward. And so verse 7 says, the honor is for you who believe. And that's what we're told is the difference between rejecting him because we don't like what we see, because we're not really dealing with what we're seeing in him, but we're projecting our own shame onto him and hating his goodness. Or are we willing to humble ourselves and to taste his goodness so that then in believing there's an honor that becomes ours. This is how we deal with our inner shame, not on our own, but by a, a transformation of what God does. You know, when Jesus was baptized, you go to Matthew 3. And in his baptism, there's a voice that's heard as John the Baptist baptizes him. And it's the voice of God. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's really important. You know, John wondering, how do I know this is the one that, who has been sent? Well, there it is, the verbal affirmation. This is the beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But the nature of ministry in this world is that just as Jesus hears that encouraging affirmation, as he unites with people through this sign of baptism, he didn't need to repent of his sin, the old covenant baptismal sign, but he was joining with us. Immediately, he's challenged on that nature of his identity. So Matthew 3, he's baptized. Matthew 4, he's in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. And in a subtle way of tempting him is not simply to show him things, not simply to make him do things, but to preface everything with the phrase, if you are the son of God, you know, part of the craftiness is before the t specific temptation even comes, 
let me just, you know, what have you just heard? This is my beloved son. And now, if you are the son of God, first of all, are you? <laughs> what gives you that confidence? Now, if you are, why don't you prove it by doing the things that I tell you to prove it? That's the nature of temptation. And then we find through his whole ministry echoes of what we see there in the spiritual temptation as the religious leaders, the people who should have welcomed him, um, come to test him. They want to trap him. They're trying to make him look ridiculous. And so throughout his ministry, the question keeps coming. If you are the son of God, do you really claim this about yourself? And he could have held on firmly. I heard the voice of the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Here, Peter says, Jesus was chosen and precious in his sight. He was not prideful. He was not arrogant for thinking he had the love of the Father, but he had to stick to it. That same voice, you get to Matthew 27, Jesus is on the cross, and they start shouting, why don't you come down from there? And what's the phrase? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Show your power. Like anybody could be crucified, but wouldn't it demonstrate your unique power if you came down? Just like Satan had said, wouldn't it demonstrate your power if you could turn this stone into bread in your hunger? If you are the son of God. But Jesus showed his thorough goodness. He didn't need to come down to the cross to prove to the hostile that he was the son of God, who he claimed he was. See, that was the nature of the temptation. Come down to the cross and join us in our hostility. And Jesus has shown us that he already came down and joined us in our hostility. But now his going to the cross was the final step, his going before us so that he would bear the penalty of it, that he would bear the hostility, that he would bear the wrath. And what we're told is his not coming down wasn't a sign that he was not beloved or God of, of the Father or that he lacked power. It's the evidence that he actually was thoroughly good because he didn't go to the cross for anything that he had done, but he went to the cross for the things that we had done. His not coming down meant that he didn't need to prove to the hostile that he was who he claimed to be. It meant he needed to establish for the sinful that he came to fulfill what he promised, which is uh, to bear our sin and unite us to Christ. And so it's that thorough goodness that then Peter writes to us. Why does Peter address us in verse 11 as beloved? Well, because if we build our lives in Christ, if we are in him, we are with the one who is chosen and precious in the sight of God. So what we're told is if you have joined your life with Christ, if there's spiritual vitality, if you have the honor of believing, then what's true of him will be true of you. You will face rejection by humankind, sure. But you are also chosen and precious in the sight of God. And it's that that you need to hold to. Last week, if you were here, I said, one of the things that we really need to hold to is the goodness of God. Um, God is thoroughly good, and it's hard for us to see. And yet, as a foundation, as a premise, if you could hold to the firm conviction that God is good, in verse 3, have you tasted that the Lord is good? If you have, he will give you more of that taste. That will be a, a solid foundation. Whereas if you start to, to say, well, let me have a different starting point. Maybe let me be more neutral and assume nothing about God. Or let me assume that there may be something wrong with God. Well, you'll reach the logical conclusions of that. But if you ground yourself on the goodness of God you will find that the goodness of God is seen more as you are being transformed to be like him. And so hold to that. Have you tasted that God is good? Hold to that. Now, the reality is 
God's goodness is, is pretty compelling. It's hard to argue against. What we, the arguments against it have to do with our own lack of information, the things that we don't know. So why is it that we suffer? We don't know. And so then in not knowing it would make sense that God is not good or God is not able to do anything. But there's so much else in Christianity that, that, that will help us in those moments to say, well, I can't explain why God let this happen. But I also can't explain why if God is going to do something in my life, it would involve his coming into the world and suffering in a greater depth. And so is God good? I don't know how this works, but I have enough to say God is good. And so here's the thing, though. If you find yourself able, as most of us are not, but if you find yourself able to hold thoroughly to the goodness of God, the war against your soul will be giving up on the question of God's goodness. Because it's hard to make a compelling argument against the goodness of God. What's easy is to make a compelling argument against your not being good. That the evidence is simply in our hearts. It's, it's with being honest to say at the end of the day, even if God is good, I am not. And so how does that get used in the war against your soul? <laughs> sure, let's assume God is good. Why would a good God want somebody like you to be in its midst? See, it's the assault on our shame to get us to think as we should not think, not to think out of goodness. And so if we can't hold to the goodness of God, um, we have trouble. If we can hold to the goodness of God, your own goodness will be tested because you will see your own envy. You will see your own hypocrisy. But what we're told is the paradigm is very different. The voice of God is, is very different. The, the voice of the one who says, this is my beloved with whom I am pleased. We're told in Christ, we are the beloved. Chosen and precious, not because of what we've done. Which means that the line of arguing against that voice is argued out of the freedom of who we are in Christ. Do we believe in the sight of God? He's chosen and precious that he came and joined himself with us. That gives us a new way of seeing things where in freedom we can be honest about ourselves. It's in our pride when we fight back and say, no, but I'm good enough, that eventually we're destroyed until we're humiliated. The gospel way, when the message says, God may be good, but you're not good enough, is to, to have that honesty. <laughs> Are you good enough to be with God? You can say, you know, I am not good, but God is. And what does God's goodness include? What well, includes mercy. The nature of God's goodness is that he's merciful to the undeserving, to the sinful, to those who have already failed. And so what does the theology of God's goodness mean? It means you could be honest that you're not good enough, but you still can taste that the Lord is good and he will feed you and he will bring you out of the shame that traps us and into the grace and favor that causes us to grow. And we have to remember that because of the compelling nature of the sight of God. Uh, verse 10, you can say, once I was not God's people, but now I am. Once I had not received mercy, but now I have. And that's the honor for those who believe. Are you good enough? It's not the question you're meant to grapple with. That's the question of the persecutor. <laughs> you can be like, it doesn't matter. I don't have to claim that I'm good enough. Christ is good enough. And therefore, if I'm not good enough yet, I will appeal to the mercy of God and take hold and taste his goodness as he does that gracious work of sanctification so that I will stand justified in him, I will be set apart as holy, sanctified in him, and I will trust that there's a process that in real time, there's a war against my soul. But God's mercy is part of his goodness. 
And so in verse 11, as sojourners and exiles, the identity is that uh, we're going somewhere. We're going through this world. And there's forces that would hold you back. And the idea is you're going through and it's not going to be easy. Sometimes it will be great. Look, as a cyclist, the one nice thing about getting up the hill is that you get to go down the hill. And there are moments where God gives you rest. God gives you blessing. He gives you encouragement. But then through the course of life, there are times that you're going to get tired and discouraged. If your hope is that you're finally good enough to make it up on your own, then you've lost gospel hope. You've lost your way. Hold to the gospel hope that it's God's goodness that will strengthen you. It's your union with Christ. It's his work in you that is making you good, and he will strengthen you, and he will be with you. And so here's the third reality. You must keep your conduct honorable. That's verse 12. So there's a war against your soul. You have received mercy. Now verse 12. You must keep your conduct honorable. How do you conduct yourself? Now, now notice what he's saying. He's not saying... God has accepted you as you are. He graded on a curve. You're not good enough, but these are the rules. Get it together. That's how we naturally think, and that's how we become performative in the Christian life like we are in any other life. We're told, keep your conduct honorable. Why? Because the honor is for those who believe. You don't need to prove your worth in the kingdom. You need to receive your identity and live that new life. And so put away your slander, your envy, envy, your hypocrisy. There's no room for it in your life to have its influence. But, uh, but keep your conduct honorable. And so in verse 9, it's not just that Jesus was rejected and chosen, but it applies to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's that new reality, and you study the Bible, and you realize how profound and deep those words are in terms of the history before, that he applies them to us and says, you are now the beloved. And so the admonition is, live as though you really believe that's true. Keep your conduct honorable. Um, This week I was, uh, without giving you the backstory of why I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Beatles. So so arguably one of the, the best Uh, sort of pop rock musical acts of the 20th century. And a defining album for them was called Rubber and Soul, where it was a shift, not simply for them, but some people will look to it and say this was a shift actually in lyric writing, uh, where people went from singing these these wonderful poppy songs that were meant to be happy and encouraging to starting to get a window into who we are, to a a tradition of musical lyric that, that at least in that strain is more musically authentic. And so the uh, story of one of the songs in that album, at that point, the Beatles are really successful. They're really popular. Uh, And uh, they have an album, so they have deadlines. You need to write songs for it. And there's John Lennon uh, sitting for hours, unable to come up with anything. (laughs) He can't come up with anything. And so he is feeling despair. Now, as an outsider, I would be, you know, who cares? Whatever You're John Lennon. Whatever you come up with is bound to be pretty good. Because the objective person on the outside is looking at his success. Look at all the great things you've done. Why would you not have confidence you can do it now? And yet you know how it is. It's actually needing to keep up with that. I now need to keep up with all that fame. And I've got this deadline. And here I am, my imperfect self, uh, struggling. So if you had the opportunity to sit down with John Lennon, if, if you were there with him that night and he came into your room after five hours, completely exhausted, completely dejected, saying, we need to go into the studio and I have nothing what would you say? And I imagine I would say, you're John Lennon. Don't worry about it. You've you've made like lots of good songs before. 
you'll find a way. You've got the rest of the band to help you through this. I think it would be easy for me to be the one who would try to encourage him because of the confidence that I have. Um, but it's always different when you're that person, <laughs> when you're John Lennon who has the deadline, who needs to keep up the reputation of being great. So apparently he, in despair, sort of gave up, laid down, and then when he was laying down, um, not trying, not striving, the lyrics came to him for a song called Nowhere Man. And, and it's a shift from the lyrics of She Loves Me, Yeah, 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 or um, Shake It Up, Baby, Twist and Shout. You know, those are the Beatles lyrics to, you know, there's this guy, a real nowhere man, living in a nowhere land. He can't see anything. He doesn't want anything. And it's a step forward that you wonder, well, Paul McCartney later said, you know, this is John writing about his experience. Well, why didn't he come out and just say, I'm a nowhere man? Did he lack the vulnerability to admit it? Maybe. But as an artist, maybe he's trying to talk not simply about his experience, but his experience as a human being. So there's a refrain in it about this nowhere man. Now we're singing about somebody else. If I sing about me, you're going to look down at me. If I sing about you, you're not going to buy the record. If I sing about nowhere man and then say, but isn't he a little bit like you and me? then I could acknowledge, maybe this song is about me. And maybe you could say, you know what, when I hear this lyric, I'm drawn in because I too feel like I'm going nowhere. And I, who would have been there to say, John, I'm confident you could come up with this. I would have been right. Uh, so he wrote the lyrics on a piece of paper that he left in the studio, uh, folded up. There's some tea stains on it. That shows that they're an English band. Instead of beer being on it, there was tea stains on it. It, it auctioned, the, the lyrics auctioned at Christie's 20 years ago for $450,000. So here's the guy who everyone looks to, who can't keep up with the expectation, who feels like he might be the nowhere man. But he's not, and everything that he does, uh, the, the very writing about his feeling like there's nowhere has this great value because of who he is, and he seemed to have forgotten it. Hebrews 2 says, Jesus Christ is the author of your salvation. So if you find yourself saying, I, I, I don't know if I'm good enough, what is your confidence in the one who is writing the story of your life? Uh, the one who says, you may not be good enough yet, um, but you're not nowhere. Uh, you're coming with me, beloved, now a people, somebody who received mercy. So Peter writes and says, so conduct yourselves as honorable people. It's, it's the shame that says, you need to prove yourself. You'll never be good enough. Don't try because you'll fail. It's the gospel that says, maybe you're not good enough. That's okay. God is good enough. So have confidence. Conduct yourself honorably. It changes how we go out into the world. And so verse 5, you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you did it on your own, it wouldn't be acceptable. It would always be tainted by your own corruption. But Jesus Christ has joined himself with you. And if you're walking with him, and you should be, then conduct yourselves honorably. Then whatever you offer will be acceptable because it is offered through Christ who makes you acceptable. Practice that this week. Thanksgiving is going to test that. Can you conduct yourself honorably? Some of you are preparing mentally to go to a family where political conversations that you don't want to come up will come up. Some of you are looking at this week and for whatever reason you didn't make any plans and so you think I'm gonna be alone for Thanksgiving. 
Some of you may be thinking right now, you can't wait for that great meal, and then you wake up and your stomach's not feeling good. We don't know how we're going to be tested this week. But we could be sure that we're called to conduct ourselves honorably. So mentally prepare, but, but wherever you go this week, give thanksgiving as somebody who is called to conduct yourself honorably. And, and I want to suggest a little prayer exchange for us. If you find yourself um, alone on Thanksgiving and it troubles you, it's fine. Lament, call out to God. Lord, uh, I'm dissatisfied. But remember that there's probably somebody also in our community who wishes that they were alone and wished that they weren't in the difficult family situation that they're in. So as you pray for yourself, Lord, help me to be thankful. Pray for people in our community who wish that they weren't with the people that they were with. Or if you're among your family and you feel like, I just need to get out of the room, <laughs> to pray and calm down. When you go and pray for yourself, remember anybody in our community who might not have anyone with them. Or if you find yourself rejoicing, this is a great day, pray and give thanks. But pray that everybody in our church would see something of God's grace to be thankful for. So let's conduct ourselves honorably. Don't get pulled in to our dissatisfaction. Don't let your shame dominate you this week. This could be a great week to be excited, but it could be a hard week. We're all gonna be tested. My encouragement is, if you are beloved in Christ, conduct yourselves honorably. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, there's no room in your life. Put away, put away envy, malice, slander, and keep your conduct. And that's the pattern. There's what we're getting rid of, and there's what we're holding on to. We're getting rid of the old, and we're keeping the new. More of God in your life. Practice it this week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we always end our prayers in Jesus' name because um, our worship itself would not be honoring to you because we come and we sing things that we don't fully believe are true. We declare and proclaim a faith that we still have doubts about. We come here seeking to align our lives with you despite the things that we've done this week that have caused division and separation. Uh, Lord, we don't want to be nowhere people. We don't want to be lost. We don't want to get pulled down. We don't want to allow shame to dominate us, but we want to taste that goodness and we want to rest in grace and we want to know that you are merciful. And so open our eyes that we would see Jesus as you present him, full of grace and favor, and that through his light, we would proclaim your excellencies, that you've called us out of darkness into that marvelous light, that in the light, if we see more of our flaws, we would also see more of our freedom that we would see that the old person uh, does not define who you are making us to be, and that with that confidence, we would go out into the world every day to conduct ourselves as those who know the honor of bearing your name. Lord, forgive us for where we fall short. Help us where we're weak, uh, but strengthen us by your spirit that we would be alive, a sign of that light. Bless us this week as we go, uh, wherever we go, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.